This morning, I couldn't help but stand in my favorite room in the house. Modern day kitchens truly are a marvel to behold. I don't think I'm alone in thinking this. Most people spend more money on their kitchens than any other room in the house. We're in a unique time in the history of our world where we can have enough food stored up to last a whole family for weeks, if not months. And beyond that, we have the ability to cook almost anything that we can dream. We are truly blessed by kitchens. But even in our prosperous nation, we aren't immune to the effects of our world. Just a, a few months ago, I can remember going into grocery stores with empty shelves left and right. While we ended up being just fine, there was a fear that began to set in early on as our government leaders issued a state of emergency due to the coronavirus. There was a palpable eeriness in stores as if everyone was thinking the same thing. Could this be my last chance to buy food? As Americans, we take our food very seriously and we store up tons of it. But when the quarantine hit, I don't know about you, but I was starting to get terrified that we were gonna to have to live off of ramen noodles. Now, don't get me wrong, I like a good bowl of ramen, but the thought of not having any other options is terrifying. Now, in hindsight, I know that my fears were probably ridiculous, but the situation we faced recently was a bit of a microcosm of a story we're gonna look at today. For the last several weeks, we have been following the life of a man named Joseph. Joseph was the son of a nomad named Jacob who had 10 sons before having Joseph. But Joseph was his dad's favorite and he loved to rub it into his brother's faces. Well, at one point, his brothers plotted to kill Joseph, but against their better judgment, they instead sold him as a slave and he ended up working in Egypt. And while in Egypt, time and time again, Joseph worked hard in difficult situations, but things just got worse. He was accused by his master's wife of making sexual advances towards her, even though the complete opposite was true. He was then put in prison where he led other prisoners with integrity. He even helped one fellow prisoner be restored into the house of Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. But for years, that man never once mentioned Joseph's name. But finally, Joseph was given the chance to come before Pharaoh and interpret his dream. Pharaoh was so impressed by Joseph's God-given ability to interpret the dream that he set Joseph as his second in command over all of Egypt. And for seven years, the nation prospered. But then, just as Joseph predicted from Pharaoh's dreams, the nation of Egypt entered into a great famine. And that's where we pick up this morning. Check out the state of the nation of Egypt during this time. We're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 47, starting in verse 13. Meanwhile, the famine became so severe that all the food was used up and people were starving throughout the lands of Egypt and Canaan. By selling grain to the people, Joseph eventually collected all the money in Egypt and Canaan, and he put the money in Pharaoh's treasury. When the people of Egypt and Canaan ran out of money, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. Our money is gone, they cried, but please give us food or we will die before your very eyes. Let's pause right here for a second. Egypt has just experienced some incredibly prosperous years in its time under the leadership of Pharaoh and his new prized leader, 
Joseph. They were the most prosperous nation in the world. They were eating off of the abundance of the land, storing up lots of food. I mean, it's getting to the point where salmon and filet mignons are getting a little old. But then something horrible happens. A famine begins and they can no longer produce food. Now, this isn't something like an almond shortage in California where about seven people in the entire United States care that almonds got a little more expensive. This is a massive drought where their whole economy begins to shut down. They're literally running out of food and actually starving. And they come to Joseph and ask him what to do. Imagine this for a second. Imagine that you are promoted to a high place in our nation. Over some crazy circumstances, out of the blue, the president, and whoever your favorite president is, you can imagine them, okay? That president calls you up and asks for your advice on something. You give them your advice, and he loves it so much that he fires his vice president and brings you on. And from the moment you take that position, everything you touch turns to gold. Every decision you make is met with thunderous applause. You see the economy at heights it's never been at. Your approval rating is off the charts. Everyone is happy. And even though you're the vice president, you're making this happen. And then out of nowhere, something so terrible happens that people in our nation can't even get food. Every class, rich or poor, is now coming to you for a solution. What do you do? How do you respond? Or look at the state of our world and specifically our nation today with a pandemic and resurgence of racial issues and the increasing tensions in our country. Our leaders have some incredibly difficult decisions to make. Let's set aside the politics for a second and just think, how would you react to a nation in such turmoil? Joseph is in a difficult position and all eyes are on him. Each and every one of us faces difficult situations on a regular basis in our lives. And how we respond in difficult circumstances says a lot about our character. For me, I know all too often I run from difficult situations. I don't like the discomfort I get when something doesn't go the way I had planned. You see, in difficult times, I realize that my true character is one that doesn't really trust in God's plan for my life. In all reality, I, I trust in myself more than I trust in God. So what about you? What is your natural tendency when hard times come? Is it to run from the situation that God has called for you? For some of us, our natural tendency might be the opposite. We actually stay in place. When God is calling us to step into the unknown because we fear what that might look like. For others, the temptation when things get hard is to put up walls and not let anyone come in and help them. Wherever you are this morning, whatever your tendencies are during difficult situations, I think we can learn a lot from Joseph's response. Pay attention to what he does and doesn't do, starting here in verse 16. Joseph replied, since your money is gone, bring me your livestock. 
I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph in exchange for food, in exchange for their horses, flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and donkeys. Joseph provided them with food for another year. Joseph could have felt worried that people thought it was his fault that they were in this famine. He could have been weighed down with the fear that people were going to blame him for everything. He could have been defensive, arrogant, or even dismissive of the people's cries for help. Joseph could have even questioned why God had put him in this position when things were going to be so hard. He could have taken it personally and interpreted this as meaning he was a bad leader. He could have wished he was the leader in some lesser nation so he didn't have such great responsibility on his shoulders. But he doesn't do any of that. He does not allow Satan to get in the way of what God was trying to do in and through him. He trusts that God is in control. I mean, look at all that Joseph endured up until this point. He was hated by his brothers. They sold him into slavery. He was falsely accused of adultery and placed into prison. He was forgotten by the very man he helped get free from prison. And now he's up against the greatest famine Egypt had ever seen. But he knows God is in control and he takes action. And things improve. Keep reading with me in verse 18. But that year ended... And the next year they came again and said, We cannot hide the truth from you, my Lord. Our money is gone and all our livestock and cattle are yours. We have nothing left to give but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your very eyes? Buy us and our land in exchange for food. We offer our land as ourselves, as slaves for Pharaoh. Just give us grain so we may live and not die. And so the land does not become empty and desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold him their fields because the famine was so severe, and soon all the land belonged to Pharaoh. As for the people, he made them all slaves from one end of Egypt to the other. The only land he did not buy was the land belonging to the priests. They received an allotment of food directly from Pharaoh, so they didn't need to sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Look, today I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. I will provide you with seed so you can plant the fields. And when you harvest it, one-fifth of your crop will belong to Pharaoh. You may keep the remaining four-fifths as seed for your fields and as food for you, your households, and your little ones. Things are getting awful for the people of Egypt. They go so far as to say they will be slaves of Pharaoh. So yet again, Joseph is facing some serious issues. He has put together systems in place. He has made plans. He has stepped into the messiness of the situation. And for a little while, it works. But then after a year, they're back to square one. So what does he do? Rather than giving up, rather than saying, I did my best, I am out. He continues to lead through it. He seeks solutions and works through it. Now, before we move forward, there are a couple things that are really important to note here. One is that we are reading an account of something that happened a few thousand years ago in a culture far different from our current Western civilization in 2020. So if you're like me, when you see the word slavery, it jumps out of the text because our concept of slavery is based on how we've seen slavery in our own nation's history. 
Slavery in the context that we understand is a horrible, horrible thing. But for us to fully grasp what the Bible means when it talks about slaves and servants, we need to understand that it it doesn't fully fall into the category that we're familiar with. You see, in the ancient world, slavery was often a contract between two willing parties that felt it would be mutually beneficial for them. So the servant would agree to work for the master, and the master in turn would agree to protect and provide for the servant. And in a world where governments were often corrupt and the rules were ever-changing, it was honestly oftentimes better for someone who was underprivileged to enter into one of these contracts. Another reason that people entered into contract with others as, as slaves or servants was in order that, to pay off some sort of debt owed to the other person or their family. Rather than paying off a loan with interest, they instead paid off their debt by working for the lender. And since you couldn't declare bankruptcy back then, there was always a way to pay off your debts. So in this case, the Pharaoh entered into contract with the people in order to provide them with food, and in return, they worked to pay off their debt. Now, I am not necessarily even justifying the use of slavery in this way, but whatever happened, both parties were in agreement, and we don't have much more than that other than the fact that they were happily agreed. Also note the generous terms of the contract. The people only had to give Pharaoh 20% of their produce. That means the slavery contract entered into by the Egyptian people was less taxed than what many of us pay today. For some of you, 20% tax sounds amazing. Finally, Joseph even mentions specifically the importance of providing for the people, for their households, and their children. So this doesn't seem like any form of abuse of power where Joseph has evil intent. Rather, it seems to be an attempt at protecting the people and enabling them to care for their families with their own work, while also providing the future ability for families to regain independence from Joseph and Pharaoh once the famine is over and they're able to repay their debt. So, all in all, this is nothing like the slavery we know of in modern Western culture. In fact, look at the positive response given from the people in verse 25. You have saved our lives, they exclaimed. May it please you, my Lord, to let us be Pharaoh's servants. Joseph then issued a decree still in effect in the land of Egypt that Pharaoh should receive one-fifth of all the crops grown on his land. Only the land belonging to the priests was not given to Pharaoh. So Joseph, in the midst of one of the most difficult unimaginable times for the nation of Egypt, steps up and leads through the challenges. And every time that he comes up with a solution with the nation, things seem to get worse. But he consistently came through. Joseph's success wasn't a lucky guess. It was persistent planning ahead to meet the needs of others. Somehow, while everything around him seemed to be falling apart, He kept moving forward, looking forward, trying his best to make a difference in the lives of others. Similar to how God was able to use Joseph in a secular position of power to make a difference. How could God be wanting to use you where you are to make a difference? 
What kind of gifts do you have that God wants to unleash into the world? Even if you're not a leader of an organization or a leader of anything, God's word tells us that he wants to use each member of Christ's church to make a difference. 1 Peter 4.10 says, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. In fact, I don't think it was just Joseph doing things right here. The people of Egypt worked with Joseph to see the change happen. A leader can only make a difference if the followers are with them. So no matter what your position is in the home, in an organization, or in our church community, God can use you. God is willing to use anyone. He used a bratty, smug little boy from a roaming tribal family to change the entire course of a nation here. In fact, if you haven't read through the Bible before, do it sometime. You're going to see God use people who at one point in their lives were spoiled brats, adulterers, murderers, prostitutes, liars, rioters, thieves, and selfish people to do incredible things for his kingdom because God reclaimed them. And if you've put your trust in Christ, God has reclaimed you and wants to use you to reclaim his creation. So how do we do what Joseph and the Egyptian people did? How do we persistently try again and again to improve the world around us when things are hard? How do we lead well amidst the pandemic? How do we see our church community continue to grow in our passion for Jesus? How do we become a people who embrace seeing our communities transformed with the gospel of Jesus Christ in a culture that doesn't like much of what Jesus has to say? We can learn so much from Joseph's example, not just from what he does do, but also what he and the nation of Egypt do not do. What's missing from Joseph's actions here? He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't complain and dispute. In fact, he has every reason to do so, yet instead, he plans ahead. My mom used to have a sign up in our house that said, do all things without grumbling or complaining. It comes from Philippians 2, 14. And that's Joseph. He's doing all of this without complaining or grumbling. And the people are the same. They come to him and say, here is the problem. How can we be part of the solution? What can we do to help? You see, guys, God is looking for reclaimers, not complainers. He's looking for people in this world to reclaim God's creation, to see lives changed by Jesus, to see that sin has brought our world low and brought ruin and division to our neighborhoods, our schools, and our cities. And God wants people to see that he loved the world so much that he sent his son Jesus to reclaim the hearts of mankind. And he wants to use those who trust in him to bring his message of redemption to their neighbors, their coworkers, and everyone around them. Can we be real for a second this morning? We have a problem with complaining as a society. I mean, we are literally being fed by the leaders of our nation that our job as citizens is to complain and whine and groan about everything that is wrong with this world. And we love it. I mean, no wonder so many people stay committed to their favorite news network where some political pundit bashes the opposing party and spends two hours complaining about everything wrong with them. We love it. We eat it up. 
As a kid, I used to grab my bowl of cereal and I would slurp my cereal in the morning. And it was disgusting. My family hated it. They would ask me to stop. But guys, that's what we do with complaining. We slurp and slurp and slurp the complaints right up. But do we ever stop to think about how we can be a part of the solution? When I read this account of Joseph's actions and the actions of the people, I feel ashamed because I give up in situations a lot less difficult than this. But there's people who are like this. I have a friend named Josh. He went through devastating years. He was in a, in a great job working in business and uh, had, had many fruitful years ahead of him but he felt a strong calling to ministry. And so he was faithful to that. But amidst that, his fiance at the time didn't agree with that call. And eventually he realized he was being called to actually end that relationship in order to follow his calling. So he changed his life calling. He went to a new city, into a new church community. And he had a really hard time adjusting and dealing with the hurt and pain in his past. And yet I never heard Josh complain in the two years that I worked closely with him. And then I've known people who have it all. And yet they're miserable and they aren't making a difference. How could Josh be like that? He didn't make complaining a part of his vocabulary. You see, I don't think we realize just how awful complaining is. Like I mentioned earlier, many of us, we, we kind of love it. I'm certainly in that group that takes a little bit of delight in complaining about things. But complaining ruins progress. Progress can't happen amongst people who embrace complaining. Do you want to see the problems in our nation persist? Keep complaining. Do you want the animosity between you and your sibling or parent or spouse to increase? Complain about them. You want that project that worked to never get done? Whine and moan about how no one else is doing it. Complaining will never solve problems. It's like trying to put out a fire by sticking your credit card in that, in that card slot, selecting unleaded, and letting that hose just pump onto that fire. Guys, if we want to be a group of people who live up to the purpose that God is calling us to, if we want to be the body of Christ that sees God move in our families and schools and communities, we have to reject complaining as a part of our vocabulary. Some of you, you're appalled if you hear an inappropriate word come out of someone else's mouth. They use potty language or say a curse word, but then at the same time, you're completely desensitized to complaints. Like a sailor who spews out profanities every other sentence, you let the complaints flow freely. Now, I am not justifying swearing or anything like that. I think God calls us to have high standards for the words that we use. But call me crazy, I think complaining is far more destructive than a swear word. Totally my opinion, and you can disagree, but I don't want you to miss just how destructive complaining is. Families often have swear jars in their homes. What if we had complaint jars where every time you heard a complaint from a family member, they put a coin or, or a dollar in that jar? When I was in college, one of the interesting things I observed is just how much college students are critically observing everything around them. They were finally living out on their own and now are responsible for thinking for themselves. So they would look at everything critically. And I was right there with them. 
It was something that we were all developing. The skill of looking critically at the world. And that is a great skill. I certainly agree that we need to recognize the problems around us. I'm not saying we need to ignore the negative and only talk or think positively at all times. I mean, imagine if the people of Egypt pretended like everything was okay. They would all die. But the difference is they didn't just look at things critically and end there. My point is this. Almost everyone develops the ability to look at things critically to some degree. How willing are you to not just see problems, but offer up whatever you can for the kingdom of God? How willing are you to not just see the sinful behavior of a neighbor next door, but to reach out to them and show them that someone loves them and wants to invest in their lives? How willing are you to not just post stories on social media about racial division in our nation, but to actively go and serve those who are underprivileged around us? How willing are you to not just recognize that there are imperfections in our own church, but to seek ways in which you can improve our church community and, and help our capacity to be a light to our community? Because here's the reality. There will always be things that we can complain about and be discouraged by. There will never be a point where there is nothing that we can find wrong in our lives or communities or churches this side of heaven. As soon as the pandemic is over, as soon as the protesting is over, guess what? Something else is going to come up. That's life. Even after Joseph solves these issues here, the last five verses of the chapter, verses 27 through 31, Joseph's father, Jacob, is preparing to die. And he's giving Joseph instructions on where he wants to be buried. If we want to complain, we'll always have opportunities to do so. Are you a complainer or a reclaimer? Are you a slave to cynicism? Or are you partnering with God in the business of redeeming this world, reclaiming this world for His glory? God is ready to use our church community to make waves for His kingdom. Now, I, I can't force anyone watching this to stop complaining and make a difference. But it breaks my heart to think that someone would walk away this morning without a resolute commitment to trying to remove complaining from their vocabulary. So if you want to be part of God's redeeming work in this world, here's what he wants you to do. Pay attention to your complaints. You won't change overnight, but pay attention. How much is what you are saying when you are sitting down for coffee or talking with your small group? Are you complaining? It will take time. I mean, for Joseph, God was preparing him for years in his role as a leader. And the same is true for us. But will you join me in saying, I am done with complaining. I hope if nothing else, you can help hold me accountable to that resolve. And as you seek to reject a complainer's mindset, Look for something around you that you can reclaim for the kingdom of God. Is there a neighbor who needs to know Jesus? Is there a ministry at the church or in our community that needs your help? Is there a brother or sister in Christ that needs to be encouraged to replace complaining with reclaiming alongside you? As we begin to rid ourselves of complaints and look for opportunities to reclaim this world, for God's glory, I believe we'll see a revival 
all around us. And we'll see God work in ways we could have never imagined. I know that God is ready to use this church to accomplish incredible things. But like Joseph, we have to be all in. Pray with me. God, thank you. Thank you so much for all that you've given us, God. Thank you for this church community. Thank you for First Free Church that we get to be in Baldwin, Missouri to impact our communities around us. Thank you for that commission and allowing us to be a part of your kingdom work, God. I pray for our community, God, that we would be a family here at First Free Church that rejects complaining, God. I believe with my whole heart that you are ready to use this church to make incredible impacts in our community. But I also believe that Satan knows that too. And Satan is gonna try everything he can to tear us down as a community. And so, Father, give us a, a resolve. Give us a, a, a unwavering commitment together to follow your calling on our lives and on our community. God, get rid of the complaints. Help us to hold one another accountable. Father, let us walk in the calling that you've given each and every one of us. We want to see people know Jesus and grow closer to you. Would you give us that opportunity in the months and the years to come? We love you, Lord. Let all things we say and do be honoring and glorifying to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.